It is a blessing to be able to spend time and worship to our great God this morning. We are certainly grateful for your presence, especially those that are visiting with us. We have a good number with us this morning, especially visitors, and we hope that you are able to join us once again, If you're, especially if you're in the area. We hope that you can join us uh, more frequently. Uh, and if you're passing through, we are certainly uh, thankful that you have made the choice to worship with us this morning. That is an honor for us, and we are, hope that we have treated you as an honorable guest, and we are thankful that you are here to worship God. It speaks a great deal about your interest in spiritual things. We are thankful for everyone that is here this morning. We hope that you are ready to study from the Word of God this morning, that we can all be edified and built up and strengthened in our faith. And In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to begin our study there this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is a chapter, I'm glad that Kyle made reference to this in our Bible study this morning because it really set things up a little bit for us because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul begins talking about the idea of a bodily resurrection and he talks about the resurrection of Jesus and he defends that that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that because Jesus is raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead, is how the logic goes. And so it is a chapter that points to our future hope and our future resurrection and the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. He tells us very clearly in the verses that we read just before in verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He tells us in verse 57 that those things don't have victory because we have victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then at the end of the chapter, after all of this talk about our hope and our victory that we have, that we have overcome sin, we have overcome death through Jesus Christ, He reminds us that we need to be doing something about that. Because we have hope, because we have victory, that does not mean that we get to just sit on the sidelines and do nothing. He reminds us in verse 58 that that is a call to work. That because you have victory, because you are saved, because you have received the forgiveness of sins, and because you have a future home in heaven, that is not a an excuse to do nothing. It is the reason and the purpose that you work and you serve. He says very clearly at the very last verse of this chapter, in verse 58, therefore, and as you know that when you see the word therefore, you go back and you read to understand what it's there for, and so that's why we talked about the resurrection. And he talks about that, therefore, because of all the things that Paul has been writing about up until this point, therefore, this is what it all boils down to. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The reason that we have, that we are to be abounding and working and serving and laboring and toiling for the Lord is because we have a hope. And that hope is understood as a reward. But how do we get busy? How are we going to be working? Are we working? Those are some questions and some issues that we're going to be considering this morning. That word for abound, it's from the Greek word periseo, 
and it is used 39 times in the New Testament. It's only used by gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Apostle Paul. And it is the, uh, an interesting word because it's sometimes translated in a few different ways. The Greek term means an abundance. It means to be extremely rich or to, to have an abundance there in, in the idea of a financial reward. Or it is the idea of overflowing or being outstanding. You know, whenever we think of our children, we think of them as being outstanding or something like that. They stand out. That's the idea of what is behind this Greek word for abound. That you are to be abounding is the idea of excellence. That we're not accepting subpar work here. That we are to abound in this. One definition, I like this one, uh, it is to superabound. The idea of being super. Uh, abounding is something that we are to excel in and it is really in one sense the Christian superpower, if you will. It ought to be. We need to be so committed and working for the Lord that we are overflowing and that we don't accept anything less than our best. That is what Paul is admonishing the Christians there at Corinth. To always be abounding. Be excellent in your work. Be excellent in your behavior. Be excellent in your living. And your efforts to serve Christ. So this morning we want to consider some particular ways and areas in which we ought to abound. As well as we want to make some specific applications this morning. We want to be looking and examining and asking ourselves some questions. We want to do some self-evaluation about our commitment, about our work, about our effort in serving the Lord Jesus Christ and our work that we are committed to. Are we committed? Those are some questions that we're going to have to face this morning that we are all going to have to give an answer to in ourselves before we leave here. And so we want to consider in what ways are we to abound? What are some of the areas that we are going to abound in? And the Scriptures are pretty clear and I think give us some very definitive answers and ideas and areas that we are to abound in. The first one we see in Jesus' sermon in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. It doesn't. If you did a search for the word abound, you wouldn't find find it here. But in the Greek, it is the same word. Then Matthew chapter five and verse twenty, where you see the word surpass in at least the New American Standard translation, it says Jesus says, "For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the same Greek word there. Jesus is saying that you need to abound in righteousness. That you need to superabound in righteousness. You need to be committed to righteousness. Jesus is preaching in this sermon. He's talking about being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And He has identified several different ways in which 
and characteristics in which we ought to behave as model citizens of God's kingdom, especially in the desire for seeking God's law and doing them in the Beatitudes. Some of the uh, Beatitudes, some of my favorite Beatitudes, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus is trying to give us a very clear picture of what it means to be righteous. And it's not having some sense of self-righteousness that we have checked something off and that we have done this and we have accomplished this. And okay, I've punched my ticket here. No, it's something much better than that. Jesus, He says that you need to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That you need to be seeking God with everything that you have. And if you're hungry, I know what I go and do. You can tell by how I look. I go and eat. I go and find something to eat. And I satisfy that hunger. Well, you need to think about it in those kinds of terms when it comes to seeking after righteousness. We need to be seeking God's Word and God's laws. We need to be seeking those things and satisfying ourselves with that. He talks about our heart. And our heart needs to be pure. That's what is going to be involved in righteousness. And Jesus is very clear as He talks about that you need to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Those were the perceived religious teachers that in Jesus' day... The, one of the characteristics of the uh, Pharisees, and we sometimes talk about their self-righteousness and things like that, but in a more positive light, if we think about the Pharisees, what they were trying to do, and that they failed, but they were trying to preserve a sense of holiness. That we need to be a holy people. And that was something that they at least understood conceptually as being significant and being important. And Jesus, He tells them that you need to surpass even their righteousness. Even the sense of their understanding and holiness, you need to abound in that. You need to be excellent, more excellent than them. And Jesus, He tells us what is involved in righteousness. And again, it's not this checklist mentality that, okay, we have accomplished this and I can check this off my list as being done. I put some money in the plate or I, I was baptized or, or whatever the, the list might in, entail that you have in your mind. Jesus, He gets it much more basic than even any of those things. He says in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 5, as he's talking about the purpose of the law and his purpose in coming, he says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus defines righteousness as someone who keeps and teaches the commands of God, the law of God. Righteousness. Righteous people, they listen and they do what God says. It's a very basic understanding of what righteousness is. Righteousness is someone who does God's will. That's how we need to understand and perceive righteousness. 
Jesus expects His followers to be devoted and following Him. They need to be keeping God's law. They need to be teaching other people God's commands. And if we will never abound in the work of the Lord, if we do not abound in righteousness. And so we need to understand that as part of something that we are to be abounding in. The Apostle Paul uses this idea in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we are to be abounding. He doesn't use the word abound here, but he uses the same Greek word. It's not translated this way in most Bibles. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and in verse 1, notice what Paul says. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. It's the same Greek word that you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58 for abound. That you excel still more. Or that you do this more and more. And that he uses that word excel. That you think of someone who excels. That they are going at an accelerated pace. They are going above and beyond. They are reaching areas in which other people might not be reaching. They are going above their peers, maybe, even. And Jesus or Paul here, he says that you are actually walking and pleasing God. It's not as if He is being critical here. He's not saying that, hey, look, I need to tell you that you're, you've got this all messed up, that you're, that you're all committing some kind of immorality and that you're all sinning all the time. That's not what Paul says. Notice in that, in parenthesis there, that there's this statement, he says, just as you actually do walk, that you are doing well, you're doing right, Paul says. But here comes a very challenging thing for us. Just because we're doing right today doesn't mean that there's not, still not room for improvement, right? When have we ever reached the pinnacle of righteousness or holiness is what Paul goes on to talk about. He says in verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification or holiness. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That if you are going to be constantly doing and excelling in the work of the Lord, then you have to be doing the will of God and you have to look at how you live your life. That you're going to abstain from sexual immorality. That you're going to keep your body, he calls it your vessel in, um, in verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. He says you have to learn how to control your desires and your body. That's part of holy living. That it's not going to be allowing for fornication, adultery, or scanty clothing. That's something that's going to be immoral and it corrupts your heart and your holiness and your sanctification. He goes on to talk about in verse 6 how you treat one another. He says in in verse 6, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. 
And again, you see that Paul, he says, you're actually doing all these things correctly. You're doing the right thing in good ways. But here's the challenge. You can do better. You can excel. And you can abound. He uses the word again at the end of all of this. In verse 9 and 10, Paul says that you need to abound in love. He says in verse 9, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Isn't that interesting? That Paul, he says, look, I want to talk to you about the love of the brethren. I want to talk to you about how to love one another. And it's not he's not trying to shame them. He's not rebuking them. He's not saying you don't love each other, that your church is filled with hatred. He says, no, you love all people. He doesn't have to talk to them about how well you like some people over here and how you have cliques over here and how you hate all the other people. He doesn't have to talk to them about that. He says, you are excel- you're doing well, but I know you can do better. Isn't that interesting? He says clearly in verse 10 that you do practice love for everyone. But Paul doesn't want us to ever settle for anything less than excellence. Because sometimes I think we can fall into the trap, well, I love you enough. (laughs) I love you enough. That, you know, you make some mistakes pretty often. And and I I still love you, but I I, I maxed out on my love, right? I, I I can't go along with everything. I can't love everything you do, right? No, Paul says you need to excel in your love. You need to learn how to love people more. That might be a challenge. Husbands, can you love your wife more? Yes, you can. Wives, can you love your husbands more? Yes, you can. Can you love your brothers and sisters in the Lord more? Yes, you can. And that doesn't mean that you are loving them any less than you ought to today. That just means that tomorrow you can love more. That means that you can do better in the future. And in this life of abounding in excellence, there is never a point at which we can say, well, I've done enough. (laughs) There's never that point in abounding Another passage I want us to consider this morning in ways in which we are to abound in some specific areas that Paul really gets into is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I want you to turn there with me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and in verse 7, and Paul does use the word, it's translated, Uh, abound here, at least in the New American Standard Bible, and it is the same Greek term that's found in all these other 
passages that we've been looking at this morning. In verse 7, and we've been looking at some very specific ways in which we are to abound. Abound in righteousness, abound in holiness, abound in love. And I love it whenever someone gives you this answer. Because it's so helpful, isn't it? When Paul says in verse 7, but just as you abound in everything. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> that you abound in everything. When I was in uh, college, I was working on a degree in journalism. And it, I had a professor, I had a really good professor, and he said, if you're going to be a journalist, you have to know a little bit about everything. Sports, politics, economics, statistics. You have to know how all those things work. You have to be able to understand and communicate and talk about it. You have to know about city planning. You have to know how a city works and taxes and things like that. He says you have to know everything. You're going to be a journalist. I think that's the problem with a lot of journalism today, by the way. They don't know anything. But Paul says you have to abound in everything. You have to abound in everything. And then he gives us some very specifics, which I'm very thankful for here in this verse. He says, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound, again that word, in this gracious work also. In which, in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, he's talking to the church about the collection for the saints that needed to be taken up for needy saints in Jerusalem that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And Paul comes back and revisits that. He says, you guys have been slacking a little bit. You guys need to pick up the pace. You need to get on this. And so he talks to them about giving. And that just as you abound in everything else that you do, you need to abound in that as well. And so he gives us some very specific ways in which we need to abound in everything he defines for us in faith. Remember in Luke chapter 17 and verse 5, whenever the disciples, they said to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. And one of the reasons that we come to Bible study and worship, it's because we need our faith to be increased. We need our faith to grow. That... If it's never if it's never growing, then it's going to wither away and die. You need to abound in that. You need to excel and increase your faith. You need to you need to abound in your speech. There are sometimes we need to learn to be quiet, but we need to learn how to speak in a good way. The Proverbs are filled with lessons on that. In Proverbs chapter 4, in Proverbs chapter 4 and in verse 24, uh, Solomon says, Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. If you can learn to do that, then you can learn to excel in your speech. He goes on in, in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 16 and in verse 21, in Proverbs chapter 16 and in verse 21, the wise in heart will be called understanding. 
and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. If you want to learn to be persuasive, you speak in a way that is encouraging and beneficial to others. In Proverbs chapter 22 and in verse 11, in Proverbs 22 and in verse 11, Solomon says, He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. That if you want to have influence and increase your effectiveness as a person in the people that you're around, then you will learn to speak in an effective way. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that you need to abound in your knowledge or in your earnestness and your zeal and your follow-through, that your work, that you want to abound in this. You want to excel in those areas. That you're not going to settle for anything less. And as in the context in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, I want you to abound just as you do in your faith and your knowledge or your speech and your earnestness. I want you to learn to abound in your giving as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and in verse 1, Paul says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. And there are really no excuses for being a cheapskate, <laughs> is what Paul's saying. That even whenever you're afflicted, he said, look to the Macedonians. They were in some dire straits. They were going through some afflictions. But because of their joy, and their even though in their deep poverty, they overflowed, they abounded, they superabounded in the wealth of their liberality. He says that they gave according to their ability in verse 3, begging us in verse 4 with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Because they wanted to help. They wanted to be involved in giving to help others. They abounded in that. They overflowed. They were very liberal in their giving. Paul says you need to learn from them, Corinthians. You need to learn from them. You need to abound in everything. And if you're going to abound in your faith or your speech or your knowledge, you also need to learn to abound in your giving. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. Are we abounding? This morning, are we abounding in our service to God? And I'm let's phrase it in a different way. What more can you do for the Lord? This is not to be intended to be thought of as unappreciative for what you currently do for the Lord. Or thankful for what you currently do for the Lord. But we need to reframe the question sometimes. 
What more can you do for the Lord? People who abound in their work for the Lord will not be half-hearted in their devotion, neither will they find satisfaction in making excuses. Abounding in the work of the Lord requires learning a crucial lesson. Serving the Lord and serving others is how we find fulfillment in our life. Remember in the famous inaugural speech by John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It was a call to serve. It was a call to sacrifice. And I think that in the kingdom of God, we can have that same kind of mentality. Jesus took on that sort of attitude. In Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 8, Paul talks about how Jesus took on the form of a servant. He came to serve. We need to learn the importance of service and work. People who abound in their work for the Lord will ask themselves, what more can I do to help and to serve in the kingdom of Christ? They won't have an attitude that says, well, how little can I do for the Lord? Or what's the bare minimum that I have to do to get in? They're not going to try to do as little as possible. People who abound in their work for the Lord, they ask, what more can I do? There's not going to be an idea of keeping the status quo and meeting quotas. That's not in the vernacular of a Christian who are abounding in the work of the Lord. Status quo doesn't mean, all right, we've reached a point at which we're good enough and we just need to keep it right here. We're going to always going to be looking, how can we bump it up a notch? Or how can we, instead of thinking of meeting a quota, that okay, we've done this, this, and this, there's never a point at which we say, well, that's enough. Can you worship the Lord more frequently? Attendance at worship services is something that is critical to our growth in faith. That if we're going to serve the Lord, we need to be growing and increasing in our faith and in our knowledge. And one of the ways, it's not the only way, but one of the best ways that I know of is to come together to worship the Lord. Where we get to study God's Word in Bible class and in worship service through preaching and teaching. And here's a challenge. Maybe, maybe you've heard a lot of sermons on attendance. And what I have seen and noticed and what I've heard other preachers have noticed that they will preach on attendance and maybe for a couple of weeks attendance numbers will bump up a little bit and then kind of goes back to the, the status quo. <laughs> Take the next six weeks and... Don't just, if you want to take this challenge to say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start being here every time the door is open. Just let's take it one step at a time, baby step it. Make that your goal. But in the next six weeks, just in the next few weeks, 
let's say, okay, what's one service that I can come to that I'm not coming to right now? Can I increase my attendance by one service at a time? Maybe I don't come on Sunday nights. Well, let's start adding that to our habits. Or maybe we don't come on Wednesday nights. Let's start adding that to our schedule. Plan for it. Take that challenge. Start coming to just one more service than you normally do. Start abounding. Start excelling. And I think once you begin to see that you can do that one time, you can do it multiple times. Or can you worship the Lord better? Maybe you're saying, well, I already come to all the services. So, well, we got that done. Sean, you can't preach to me. Well, yeah, we still can. (laughs) Can you worship the Lord better? Because remember, it's not about meeting a certain quota. That's not in our vernacular. We're not trying to reach just a status quo. Now, if you are coming to all the services, every time the door is open, that's great. Thank you. We commend you. We want you to keep on doing that. But can you improve in your worship when you're here? I see Sometimes I see Christians who refuse to sing and open their mouth. Can you sing more? Appreciate the great attention that our worship leaders who prepare and are very intentional in the songs that they lead us in as we worship God. I think they're a good example to follow because they put thought and intent into their role in the worship service. How many times do we just sort of have a spectator view of worship that we sit and we watch. We don't participate. We need to reframe our purpose in being here. We need to worship the Lord. We need to participate in the songs that we sing. When we pray, we need to be thinking about the words that are being led. When we are studying and being taught in Bible classes or in sermons, we need to think about what we are hearing. We need to meditate on those things. We need to take them home and think about it. In our giving, can we give to the Lord more than what we currently are? Can we worship better? It's never about the status quo. It's about how can we do more? Just as Paul, whenever he was talking to the Thessalonians, he said, you're doing really well. You're doing this really well, but I know you can do better. I think Paul could echo those same sentiments even to us today. I know that's certainly true for me. Can you serve others better? Can you visit the sick? Can you give them a call? Can you write a note of encouragement? Can you encourage those who are unfaithful or those who are weaker in their faith? Can you encourage other people more? One of the great things that I love to look at in Scripture is the one another passages. If you did a search or something in a concordance for the phrase one another, 
you will be impressed at the great number of passages that come up where it talks about our relationships with one another as members of the Lord's body. And one of the things that comes up that I am overly impressed with is that you need to greet one another. In fact, in 3 John, John tells us that we need to greet each other by name. Do you greet people when you come to church? Do you greet one another and say, Hi, how are you? What's going on in your life? How can I help you? Or do we just kind of sometimes come in at the last minute, leave as soon as the final amen is said, and we forget everyone else? We need to be visiting with people and greeting each other and getting to know them while we're here. Can you be more helpful in the work of the church? Maybe it's taking on an additional role in leading in the worship services. Or maybe it's volunteering to teach Bible classes. I've never known a church, and correct me if I'm wrong about here, I'm still relatively new here, but... I've never known a church where there are too many volunteers for any of those things. (laughs) Wouldn't that be something though if we had to start turning people away and saying, well, it's filled. We can't do that. We can't have you in here. But we'll find something for you. I'm sure is what we would say. (laughs) Can you do more to help the church? And even if you think, well, teaching Bible class, that's not for me. Or are you studying and preparing your lessons for the classes that you are a participant in? Are you abounding in your knowledge? Are you growing? Are you studying? Are you thinking of ways in which you need to be putting things into application? Are you attending those Bible classes? Just your presence in Bible class will be an encouragement to other members of the class. Can you live more faithfully? Maybe it's in areas of your speech. You're not quick to anger, but that you want to edify others. You want to encourage those who are weak. Maybe it's in your dress and how you dress. You need to dress more modestly. Those are areas of righteousness and sanctification that we need to be abounding in. Can you put away sin? Can you resist temptation? That's going to be part of living faithfully for the Lord. So I come back to the question, the big question. Are you abounding? Are you abounding in the work of the Lord? Turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul has gone to a great deal in these verses to talk about when Jesus returns and our hope of eternal life in heaven with Him. And because you have that hope, He tells us, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 
always abounding. Always. Are you always abounding in the work of the Lord? Because we have hope as Christians. We need to always be committed to working and serving because we have a reward at the end of our labors. Isn't that the beautiful picture that we can take great assurance in? That we can enjoy the fruit of our labor coming up into the harvest season, aren't we? Or we will be able to eat of the fruit of things that have grown, that you've worked and toiled on. In our work and our labor for the Lord, there is reward. There is a reward that we are striving for, the hope of heaven and eternal life with God and our Savior. We need to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Then that leaves no room for excuses nor giving less effort. We need to persevere and continually strive for doing the will of God. This morning, if you are a Christian and you've not abound in the work of the Lord, or maybe you've kind of hit pause on that and you've said, well, I've done enough. I want you to take this lesson to heart. I want you to think about it. I want you to think about how can you do more? How can you do better? How can you excel more? Because there are room, there's room for improvement in my life, and I'm sure that there are areas in which you can improve in as well. You need to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. And if you are not abounding, if you feel that you've been losing your faith and that you've been digressing and that you are withering away and dying because of the trials and the tribulations that life brings, we want to, you to know that we're here for you. We want to encourage you. And if you have sin that you have turned back to, we want to help you. We want to pray with you and pray for you. Perhaps it is this morning that you have never named the name of Christ and you've never clothed yourself with Him in baptism. And you need, that you realize you need to get to work. That you need to start abounding in the work of the Lord. We want to help you do that. If you come in faith, repenting of your sin, confessing your faith in Jesus Christ to be the Son of God who died for you and was raised on the third day, if you will be baptized in water to have your sins washed away. You will have joy and a hope for eternal life and a purpose to start working and serving the Lord. If we can help you in some way this morning, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?